Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right, man. We are getting to the final countdown, uh, pun intended. The Suns took game one of the NBA Finals. Team USA began practicing. Adam Silver discussed the close of the season. And we'll talk about who wins Finals MVP, as well as have everyone's favorite segment, Plead Their Case. But to start, the Suns took down the Bucks in game one. CP3 looks like he's been playing finals as long as LeBron James has. Giannis was able to start after injuring his knee and also looked unhindered by that. However, Dario Saric did get injured in game one. Uh, so let's start with the top CP3 shining his playoff debut. What do you think of his performance overall? And um, how, how do you feel CP3 did? I mean, he did about as good as you can ask. He honestly had a very CP3-esque game. He gave you 32 points. He had nine assists, only turned it over two times. He was plus 17 while he was out there. He made all of his free throws, four of four from the line, extremely efficient as usual, 12 of 19 shooting, four of seven from three. He honestly is just a master of just seeing what the defense gives him and taking advantage of that look, whether that means passing to the open guy or taking advantage of a mismatch. It seems like they, especially CP3, but they in general really tried to put Brooke Lopez in a lot of pick and roll and put him in a position where he had to switch out and go out and guard CP3 or Devin Booker, which honestly, he really did struggle with that assignment. So the Bucks are going to have to see how they counter because it seems like the, the Suns game plan is essentially to have Devin Booker or Chris Paul get switched onto Brooke Lopez and then take advantage of that matchup by either blowing by him, shaking, baking him for a step back or doing a driving kick. So it seems that's the way they initiate a lot of their offense. But Chris Paul was amazing. He was a master at orchestrating the half court set. Um, and he didn't really make any mistakes. You can't really ask for more. You can't, but I think the person we should highlight from this is DeAndre Ayton. Uh, Ayton came out, absolutely dominated the game. Um, he shot a ridiculous percentage from the field, shooting 80%. I know it's only on 10 shots, but still super efficient. Uh, 19 rebounds to go along with 22 points. Like he did everything you need a big man to do, played 39 minutes. Uh, another person who just made an overall impact on the game with the best plus minus Jay Crowder. Yes. He only had one point, but he had nine rebounds. And when you have uh, six of your guys in double digits, four of the starters in double digits, you're not really looked at as the person who needs to create additional production. Although, you know, it's going to come to him at some point in the game. Um, but let's quick stat line on Aiden players with 20 points. 15 rebounds or 80 plus field goal percentage in a finals game since 1955, Bill Russell, Kareem, Will Chamberlain, DeAndre Aiden. So joins a very uh, exclusive list and a, a great one at that. Yeah, I'm extremely impressed with him. I think that he has been underrated for some time now, but people are finally starting to see his value. He honestly is one of the best up and coming big men in the league. So I'm really excited to see, um, what he accomplishes. And he already at a young age has shown the ability to consistently knock it down from 15, 16 feet too. So he already shows some nice touch. He's not a liability at the free throw line. Um, he made all six of his free throws. He is everything you want in a modern center. It is true. 
But yeah. looking over at the well, at no, the Texas, I, oh, good. Yeah, I just want to say too, like at the beginning of the season when we were talking about CP3 going to the Suns, the the key storyline was, oh, what is he going to do for Devin Booker's career? But I think the piece that we talked about too was like DeAndre Ayton's a better version of what Chris Paul has had with a great pick and roll like DeAndre Jordan or Blake Griffin. Um, and that ability to not be a liability at the free throw line and to, I think, be a better offensive threat than DeAndre Jordan and some of the other centers like Amaga Okafor that Chris Paul has played with in the past is what Chris Paul did for DeAndre Ayton. But also he's even come out and said, like, Chris Paul getting traded here is the best thing for my career. And I think Devin Booker also said, even if Chris Paul came out and scored one point a game, it's his leadership that makes him the best in the NBA, and we would pay him for that. So, you know, I, I can't say enough about Chris Paul and what he uh, means to the Suns team. Yeah, no, that, that honestly, it's true. It really is something that for DeAndre Ayton, your number one pick, getting a guy like that is definitely something that's going to be able to allow him to reach his ceiling. Um, and also for Devin Booker to have someone to watch how they go about their business, how to be a leader. We've always known that Devin Booker was a great player as an individual, but he's been on a lot of losing teams. So learning those intangible factors also is something that you can't put a price on for Chris Paul. But looking at the books on the other side, um, as well as Giannis played in the beginning of the game, I thought to finish with only 11 field goals when you're supposed to be the leader of that team, that's not enough. Like you can't just shoot the ball 11 times, go for 20 points. I mean, I know he did have 17 rebounds, but in a game like this where you want to come out and make an establishment of your team's identity, I didn't think that he um, asserted himself enough and he kind of took the backseat to Chris Middleton the way that we've described, but he did it a little too much this time, leaned on him a little too much. And I think that if the Bucks are going to win this series, they need Giannis to be more dominant than he showed in today's game. The other thing that was a little strange was the free throw discrepancy for a team that gets to the line as much as the Bucks do with Antetokounmpo, Holiday, Middleton. They only got to the free throw line a total of 16 times while the Suns got to the free throw line 26 times. So the free throw discrepancy also didn't help them. And Giannis continuing to shoot poor percentages from the line also makes the margins that much slimmer for error for, for this team. So I think that for the Bucks to pull it off, um, I mean, many of them already see them as the underdogs. They're going to need Antetokounmpo to play better, hopefully knock down a few more free throws, and for Holiday to play better than he did. The reason the Bucks lost this game is largely because of Drew Holiday, in my mind. He shot 4 of 14. He had nine assists, but when you shoot 4 of 14, it's going to be tough to win that game when you're counted on to be one of the three main offensive options and you're only making four of your 14 shots. So, um, and as I said, Brooke Lopez, probably the worst plus minus on the Bucks because he just could not defend on the perimeter and they kept putting him in pick and roll. So they're going to have to find a way to be able to mitigate that liability. Yeah, and luckily Mike Budenholzer is a defensive coach, so he's going to go back and make adjustments based off of what he was seeing. But I agree with you. They just kept playing bully ball with Brooke Lopez and making him exhausted. And then you see it on the stat line uh, with overall 
Brooke Lopez, like you said, having that minus 17. Uh, he additionally only had six rebounds as opposed to 19 from DeAndre Ayton. Uh, so, you know, overall, he he needs to play better next game. He needs to play like the Brooke Lopez that played without Giannis, and they need to get him off the ball and have Drew Holiday switching uh, onto defenders or Chris Middleton switching onto defenders uh, when they're on the floor because they're on the floor for 45 and uh, 40 minutes respectively for Middleton and Holiday. So clearly they're going to be playing most of the series. Budenholzer is going to go with a smaller rotation like he did for game one. And I'm sure as Giannis gets healthier, it'll get even tighter. But if they're playing, they need to have more uh, organized switches for those two rather than having Lopez um, go on to those defenders. It should be more of like a box and one with uh, switching assignments rather than Lopez going out into the perimeter. Yeah, I agree with you. In my mind, when I'm looking at this series, the teams are actually pretty evenly matched. I would say that the Suns have more depth and have an overall better roster from top to bottom. But I would probably think that the Bucks probably have the better talent top end wise. It's just it's going to come down to who can execute their game plan better. It seems like the Bucks got a little bit undisciplined in this game, but I do expect them to come back and make it close. Ultimately, I think the Suns do take this series in, I'm going to go ahead and say seven games. I think it'll actually go seven. All right. Well, I, I think it's going to go six personally, but I do think uh, I'm going to go, even a step further and say it's going to go five. Um, I think that the Suns are likely going to win the next game. I think the Bucks maybe get one at home uh, and go two one. And then I think the Suns squeak one out in the fourth game. And then uh, because of that, the Bucks get discouraged and lose in the fifth at Phoenix. So I'm going to go Suns in five. All right. We'll see what happens. Which if you would have asked me to start the series, I probably would have said the Bucs were going to win because I didn't like that the Suns celebrated so hard for the Western Conference victory. And the Bucks said that they didn't even have like a champagne shower because they want to taste that for the finals. So um, I, I didn't, I thought the Suns were being a bit uh, like bold, but maybe, maybe they could celebrate twice. We'll see. Well, let's not forget the Bucks did lose the opening game in each of their last couple series and come back to win the series. Yeah. So it's not uncharacteristic of them to get off to a slow start. It is, but the other part that I read, uh, the Suns have only played nine games in the last month because they finished their series earlier than their opponents. So all those guys are very fresh. Yes, the rest factor, yeah, we'll have to see how that plays into it. Yep. But moving on, Team USA began practicing uh, they have the Team USA Select roster, which is playing a, a bunch of the rookies or second-year guys like Sadiq Bey, Patrick Williams, Tyler Hero, and others. Uh, they've been playing against the full roster, which includes Bam Adebayo, Damian Lillard, Kevin Love, and so forth. So what do you think Team USA's chances are at the Olympics? Who do you see as their biggest threat? And uh, what, what do you think of the overall roster and the team chemistry there? Um, I really like the team, the way that it's assembled right now. It's actually got a pretty good construction of established young stars and also the veteran stars that are in their early 30s as well. So, um, I mean, any Olympic team 
that has Kevin Durant on it is obviously going to look pretty good. But um, I really do like the team from top to bottom. They have a good collection of talent that all offer different looks. So it seems like no matter what matchup they go into, you can be pretty confident that you can configure a lineup that can exploit the other team's weaknesses. So, um, and I think the chemistry is really great. We've seen pictures of these guys practicing together in the off season. And we also have, um, I guess, a few storylines going on underneath the surface of just trying to win the championship. You have, for example, Kevin and Kevin Durant and James Harden coming off of this early exit. They're trying to establish some more chemistry. Bam Adebayo, he's trying to redeem himself, learn how to take that next step, become a better leader for his team. Um, and then you also have the storylines of, do these guys form relationships that eventually down the road lead to trades that shake up the league? We know how playing for Team USA together, um, many people say that that was the foundation for what helped LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh eventually become the super team that they were. So these, these types of situations also form relationships and friendships among players that um, otherwise may have not been there. But I love their chances. Anytime that you have Team USA, you have to be thinking of them as the favorites because they're always going to have the most um, NBA talent of any team. I thought that originally Canada may have been one of the bigger threats to them because Canada had the second most um, collection of NBA players of any, of any squad, but then they ended up not making the tournament, so can't pick Canada anymore. Um, so I guess I'm just going to go with the very familiar Spain because Spain has a really well-known team, a really well-known league that uh, has been competitive before and has been able to knock off the U.S. before. So you always have to watch out for Spain in the Olympics. They have the infrastructure and they also have a culture that since they appreciate the game of basketball on this level because they've had success, they have a lot of infrastructure in place for developing basketball talent. Yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate that Canada didn't make it. They do have a lot of young guys who are in the NBA. So I think they'll definitely be back in the next Olympics. Um, I, I agree with you that Spain is always that consistent threat, but I think U.S. Team USA will be too much overall this season. Another team to look for, France. They're always uh, in the thick of it as well. They have five guys uh, from NBA teams on their roster, including Rudy Gobert, the defensive stopgap for the Utah Jazz. So I think when you have that uh, like international talent that plays in the NBA, um, that's obviously great. Uh, but then you also have the the sprinkling in of uh, guys who do play international basketball and there are slightly different rules for international basketball. So that does play to their benefit at times. But yeah, overall, I think Team USA takes it. I do think James Harden would have been great with Kevin Durant and Team USA, but he did. Uh, unfortunately, I have to pull out due to his injury. Um, but I do think that a lot of those storylines that you talked about of having guys begin pitching their teams or having uh, other guys start to be interested in playing with a guy because of the fact that they really enjoyed playing with them for Team USA. Um, that definitely, I think, has happened a lot in the past to continue to happen in the future. Um, and we'll, we'll see where uh, all the pieces fall. And if we could point back to this Olympics as being the driving factor behind that. Um, but moving on, Adam Silver, 
press conference, he uh, started off by saying that the NBA Finals matchup is ideal for the league. Really enjoys having two small market teams with only one guy, Jay Crowder, who has previous experience, but every single guy on both of these teams has never won a championship before. So exciting for the league. Then uh, also said that no international exhibition games will be played this fall, which is to be expected still with uh, coronavirus, but he thinks that next year uh, there will be games to be played internationally. And then lastly, he said some version of play in tourney will stay. Uh, so overall, what's your reaction to those three key tidbits from Adam's press conference? I mean, I'm not really surprised about any of these things. The matchup in the finals obviously is going to be great for the league because you have two teams that are small market teams that haven't been successful for many years breaking into this, which essentially shows other small market teams that there is a roadmap and there is a way for other teams to compete. It basically shows that the league's efforts to create more parity in the league are probably paying off at this point. We know that every couple of years there's new rule changes that are being made so that one team cannot accumulate unfair advantage over other teams just because of their geographic location or monetary assets. Um, and I think that those rules are starting to produce the parity that the league wanted, which they know is going to be better for league ratings. When you know that on any given year, any given team has a shot to win, you have the entire country engaged as opposed to just certain sections of the country that have the same contenders every single year. So um, I think it's obviously great for the league. It's exciting. It's unpredictable. All those things drive ratings and make for great storylines. And I think that it's also um, just from a rooting for an underdog aspect, really fun to imagine that, no matter who wins this time, the entire team is going to be getting their first ring. So it also kind of goes against the established mantra that you need to have experience. You need to know someone or have someone who's done it before and gotten there to get to that stage. This year proved that probably health and durability is even more important than experience. So um, I think that obviously it's great for the league, the international games, obviously had to be canceled, but it is to be expected that they're going to try to do this again because the league keeps trying to expand. Um, it keeps trying to become more of a global brand. They want to obviously be able to increase their market shares and their viewership. So having exhibition games in other countries is a great way for the league to increase their exposure and um, earn viewers in other countries. So it's no surprise they're going to try to return to that. And then the playing tourney, as much as the players may have disliked it, and honestly, I'm on their side a little. Um, if, I, if I'm a seven or eight seed and I make it based on my standing position and then I don't actually get into the playoffs because I lost the playing tourney, I'd be pretty pissed. But it's just that, that factor of what might happen, that surprise factor. And they couldn't have had a better, a better two teams to – essentially put the play tourney in the spotlight this year, having the Lakers and the Warriors with LeBron and Steph Curry have to square off in the play tourney was almost like having a mini finals matchup before the finals. So obviously that was going to be great for ratings. 
once the league saw how many people were willing to tune in and watch, because these games are high stakes, desperation games, um, it's no surprise the league decided to keep it. So um, I'm not really going to comment on how fair it is, but it is good for the league's ratings. So no surprise. Yeah, I, I think we've talked about several times the adjustments and he did say that there would be tweaks to the play in tourney. I really do hope that the adjustments that they make is you have to qualify for the play in tournament by having a, a record that's either tied with the last seed of the, the number eight seed or uh, have it be a record that has to be a winning record. Um, because I think if you allow losing teams with four losses under 500 to get into the play and tourney, then people are going to look and be like, so this team didn't even put up a winning uh, outfit for every single game, but gets to potentially play and beat out somebody who did have a winning record. And so it nullifies an eight game gap difference or something ridiculous to that effect. So I do think there needs to be something in there that uh, takes care of teams that are still losing teams, making sure that they don't get in. Yeah, my, in my opinion, I mean, if the league wanted to do something that, you know, was a playing tourney, that would be wildly exciting, but also fair, I, in my mind, would be if you had a playing tourney where the three worst teams had to play for the top three seeds or the top three picks. Now that would be entertaining because you know that those teams would be giving it their best effort and it would also be a measure to prevent against tanking because you'd know that just having the worst record in the league wouldn't guarantee you the top pick. So you'd at least have to attempt to be competitive. And anytime that you encourage competition, I think it's good for the league. Probably won't happen, but would be fun. Yeah, I agree. Well, well let's talk a little bit about the finals MVP. Uh, it's hard to say who will have best game for any team on any given night but based on our earlier conversation um who do you think the finals mvp will be after game one well i think that the finals mvp for me is gonna have to be chris paul because i'm picking the suns to win the series in seven games maybe six but i'm sticking with the suns winning it and i think that chris paul is going to consistently be the best player Obviously, I think that Devin Booker is going to have at least one game where he just goes off and has a monster performance. So probably Devin Booker's best one game will probably be more impressive than any one game that Chris Paul turns in. But I think that Chris Paul is just going to be consistent every game, giving you a great game. And also for the purposes of the storyline, you can say, oh, Devin Booker is super young. He'll get another finals MVP opportunity one year. Um, he's got his whole career ahead of him. For Chris Paul, this realistically is probably going to be the last finals that he will be the lead guy. Um, I mean, obviously next year he can make it back, but it's a lot less likely. So I think that Chris Paul, someone that has been waiting this long to get to this stage, um, a lot of people think that he very much deserves a championship. I think that the storyline is just that much sweeter if you cap it off with Chris Paul and his one of his last dominant seasons of his career wins the championship in the finals MVP. So it just sounds right. It sounds like it's going to happen. And that's what I'm going with. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be Chris Paul. There's nothing really more to say there. I think he's going to, he almost, he was, he was in the conversation this year for MVP uh, given his dominant performance this season and his leadership attributes. So I think if he continues to play at a level that he is, it'd be very hard to take it away from him. But moving on to our last and final segment, plead their case. I will ask you a series of questions and you will plead their case as to why uh, that should be the way that it is. Moving on. Jamal Murray liked a tweet stating he would go to the Lakers this summer. Plead his case on why it's just an innocent like and nothing more. I think Jamal Murray, who we all know is very active on social media and likes to troll a lot, was just trolling because we know that this offseason, anything with even a little bit of steam behind it is going to be a Lakers trade room. The Lakers are getting this guy. The Lakers are getting this guy. You hear it all the time. So Jamal Murray probably knew that doing that would set off a bunch of Jamal Murray to the Lakers. So he probably just wanted to laugh about it. Um, he is obviously under contract with the Nuggets, and I don't think that the Nuggets are going to be letting him go for anything that the Lakers could possibly offer. Um, what I really don't know what the Lakers could offer for him. I really don't know because they're not going to offer Anthony Davis, and the Nuggets wouldn't take anything else that they have so I think that he's obviously just stirring the pot being the Jamal Murray that, he, that we know he is. Who's about a first round pick? No, I, I agree with you. I think that, uh, that I think that Jamal Murray is uh, not going anywhere. I agree that I think he's probably stirring the pot. Um, but I think he can potentially be on the move somewhere if egos get too big and Michael Porter Jr. becomes uh, the star that we all think he's going to. But I think we've talked about that at length. So we'll see. We'll see how he comes back from his ACL injury. And we'll see how the fit with uh, three superstars is for the Nuggets. It's a good problem to have. Yeah. Embarrassment of riches. Yes. Well, talking about another point guard who is uh, active on social media, at least in the, the limelight. Ben Simmons was mentioned this offseason that he was going to focus on improving his game. Then pictures came out of other emerging players like Bam and Tatum practicing with Team USA. But then we're seeing pictures of Ben Simmons out on dates with uh, his new model girlfriend, uh, Maya, I'm blanking on her last name, out in Wimbledon. So plead his case for why this shouldn't matter and that he still can be improving for next season. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm really going to go out on a limb here because the thing is, if, I, if I'm right about who I believe Ben Simmons is, I don't think that he's actually practicing or is really going to practice at all. We're talking about a guy who, when the Sixers got a shooting coach for him to improve his shooting, he basically just told them, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm going to go train with my brother. He didn't want their guy. He didn't want his regimen. It was not to Ben Simmons' standard. He wanted to train with someone he felt comfortable with, his brother, who... Obviously, his brother must know better than a professional. But in his defense, because that is what the segment is about, Bam and Tatum and those guys, they are actually in the Olympics. They are actually practicing for something. Ben Simmons, on the other hand, he isn't going to be competing for the Olympics. Um, Team Australia, he's not, he's not doing it. So... We don't know what he could be doing outside of these dates. It could be that maybe he's practicing for hours 
and then he goes on the date and we're only seeing the picture of the date. It's not like he only exists in photos. So who knows, maybe behind the scenes, he isn't being a bum. Um, if you're a Sixers fan, you obviously have to hope that's the case. But if you're a Sixers fan, you also know that it probably is the case. Yeah, I think you got to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, people are allowed to have lives outside of the NBA. And he was innocently, like, it wasn't like he was out partying every night. He's just with his girl at a tennis match um, at Wimbledon. Uh, but overall, definitely not a great look um, when you said you're not going to be going to the Olympics to be focusing on your game. And instead of focusing on your game, you're out. Um, so I, we'll see if he comes back stronger next season. Then clearly, like you said, he was working on his game in the shadows, but only to be told. Moving on, Bam Adebayo recently mentioned when asked about Hero joining the USAID select team that it was a great opportunity and he should take notes on other players' work ethic and how they go about their professional business. Was Bam throwing shade at his teammate or just giving a harmless answer? Plead his case. Uh, I don't think it was either one, honestly. I don't think that it was throwing shade because I think that at the end of the day, he realizes this is his teammate and obviously his own success is tied to this guy. He obviously probably doesn't want to put him down. That would obviously go against what heat culture typically is about. Um, heat culture, typically, they're very reserved, never say locker room things outside of the locker room. So I don't think it was meant to be shade, um, but more so a pointed message because this summer obviously is very crucial for the Heat. The roster for them could look completely different next season. There probably are going to be sweeping changes. And Bam Adebayo knows that as currently constructed, the ceiling of this team and how far they're going to go is going to depend on the development of their young guys, which they held on to, um, even in the face of all these offers that were dangled to them. So it's time for them to now show up and show that they're going to develop into the players that the Heat thought they would. And I think that Bam is taking the time to do that for himself personally. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but there have been lots of videos that have, that have come out of Bam honestly looking completely dominant in some of these practices, showing really improved dribbling and looking extremely confident with his jump shot, shooting contested, shooting off the dribble, shooting step backs and just knocking them down. So he clearly looks like he's putting in the time. So I think as a leader on this team, he's basically just telling Tyler Hero, hey, you have to be doing the same thing. You have to step up to the same level. So I think it's a, a call to action, not necessarily shade, but um, I wouldn't call it harmless either because I think he was very decisive in what he said. He could have easily just said, hey, yeah, I'm really happy for my teammate. But to add that little tidbit there at the end, that's sending a pointed message and a call to action. Yeah, I agree with you on all those points. I think he like you said, was sending a message, but it wasn't a harmful message. It was purely a, from a developmental standpoint, both on and off the court. I hope that he learns from these guys because these are the, this is 
the best selection of talent uh, that the NBA could offer right now. It's a, a bunch of guys who have Olympic experience, who have finals experience, who have um, championship experience. So learn how they go about the game. Go sit and pick everybody's brain. Uh, this is your best opportunity to make relationships and work with people in the offseason. And uh, so I, I think that plus Spo being able to coach him as well as having other coaches like Popovich, Kerr uh, in the room, I think that it can only help his career as long as he takes advantage of the opportunity. So, yeah, the, the other uh, thing, too, about that, actually, um, this is an interesting situation for Tyler Hero, because like you mentioned, He's on the USA Select team, but it's his coach that's coaching that team. So it's not only an opportunity to grow, but I think that Hero should realize it's also essentially an audition to keep his spot on the roster because with all the trade rumors that we've heard this offseason um, and all the different rumors that we've heard of Hero for this guy, Hero for Colin Sexton and Kevin Love, Hero for um, Darren Fox, all these trades – I think that now you're going to have Eric Spolstra, your coach, seeing how you perform against the best talent in the league around your age. And it's going to, it's going to be a very clear comparison of how good of a player Hero projects to be. And Eric Spolstra is going to get an up-close look at that, which is honestly going to really help him make his decision on whether Tyler Hero is the foundational piece for the Heat's future or not. So this offseason is huge, not only for his development, but also to prove himself to his coach that he is a building stone for the future and not a trade chip. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Team USA, Hero, and, and the overall team. But that's it for the episode this week. Uh, we will be back next week, potentially discussing a finals champion if the Suns close things out quickly, but if not, then we'll provide our further analysis uh, before the finals champion is crowned. But with that, I'm Eric Gonzalez. I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned. <laughs>